0: Okay. Hello and welcome everyone to Variant Perceptions Market Outlook Call. Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm joined by Tian. Uh, We're going to try a slightly different format this time. Um, Just starting off initially with the macro snapshot. Uh, Just in light, we've had a lot of um, engagement from clients on this report. And, you know, I think in light of some of the signals and models that have triggered and flip-flopped, I think there's a lot of room for interpretation in terms of how you actually reflect that. Um, in portfolio positioning, you know, most notably, we had um, you know LPPL crash signals on Treasuries. Um, you know, we put in the snapshot the Bank of Japan hiking regime triggered. Uh, you know, we've seen energy signals, gold signals, um, and we've seen the U.S. recession signal kind of flip flop through the summer months. Um, so, I guess Tian, if we just move to the the first slide, I think just to set the scene before we dig into some of the nuances, um, you know, our key uh, cyclical roadmap is very much still the high inflation, uh, recession roadmap where, um, you know, it really takes a while actually for it to really feel like a recession because of things like money illusion, uh, data distortions, and obviously, you know, some of the unique factors this time around that have amplified things like labor hoarding, uh, you know, response rates from various surveys are still, you know, weirdly low. Um, and so the critical things here are that, you know, the effects of negative operating leverage do take a while to kick in. Um, You know, when firms actually do start firing people and, uh, you know, critically, there's sequencing here where you do need to see significant margin deterioration first. Um, And, you know, we're kind of in that sequence at the moment, whereas, you know, in disinflation, uh, disinflationary recessions, you tend to see those bad effects happen quicker. Uh, You know, things like non-farm payrolls, you see the negative print um, a lot earlier in these recessions. So, you know, ultimately it boils down to, you know, the timing for some of these uh, risk off trades and ultimately portfolio positioning, uh, because, you know, it's not always when the recession first begins, right? It's not that first month, second month necessarily, um, but really what it boils down to, and this holds true across disinflationary and inflationary recessions, um, you know, it's when unemployment, um, you know, really starts to pick up, you know, things like initial claims really start spiking. Um, and historically that's really been the, the, the key um timing signal for these risk-off trades to really start uh coming true. Um so I guess if we if we move on to the um onto the first slide here, um uh you know, the top left chart there, um, you know, it's a little bit hard to see, but just to explain um those are our g G3 recession signals that are very much real-time probability models where um, you know, for the U.S., obviously, we've been tracking that very, very closely. And, um, you know, I think intra-month um, in August, we saw the, you know, the red line, it dipped to that 50% threshold. Um, and then it suddenly spiked higher again to that kind of 75, 76, 77 level. Um, I guess at this point, yeah, do you want to just explain um, what's going on here, how we got to this point? Um, you know, in our leading indicator watch, we we dug into, obviously, all of the things that kind of go into that. Uh, but it might just be useful just to set the scene in terms of how the data has evolved through the year um, and, you know, where we, where we stand today. Um, Yeah. So basically we have two
1: kinds of models to try and model economic outcomes, right? So the first one is the kind of slower moving lead the indicator regression kind of cycle style model where you smooth the inputs, you allow things to kind of uh, evolve over time and obviously in principle, you are tracking data that has a six to 12 month lead. So even with smoothing, that's kind of time to react to it. And then you have a second set of models, which are deliberately designed to be regime shift models. So they're very, going to be a lot more sensitive and display these kind of jump like uh, behaviors. So for the recession model itself, obviously we want to think about in the context of the, the kind of slower moving lead indicators as well. So the bottom right chart here is the slower moving lead indicators, uh, the top left are the kind of, uh, the regime shift models. Um, and these are trained on historically the beginning of uh, the recessions. So the very weird thing about this particular US lay cycle kind of setup is that the labor market has clearly deteriorated at a much slower pace than anticipated. At the margin, the data is showing things are peaking; it's rolling over. Um, but it's been quite rare historically to see when you have kind of the initial deterioration, and then it just kind of stays very slow. Normally, when you see the labor market start to deteriorate, um, the the deterioration actually starts to, starts to accelerate. And this was one of the the puzzles for this cycle, and 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 obviously this is why we wrote that really you know long report, you know. Uh, Godot's recession, right? Explaining why in this cycle there's factors uh, that mean the the labor market behavior is going to be very different. Um, so in terms of why it's it's looking like it's very sensitive now to every marginal data market update is because most of the other leading indicators that you should see ahead of a recession are in place, right? You've already had all the various uh issues on the labor market uh, with, with manufacturing, with housing, with uh, with, with yield curves, with hikes, right? So in terms of the normal sequencing, most of the things that you normally would need to see heading into recession are there. And usually the final piece, the, the the kind of confirmation, the clincher that suddenly forced the model to one is usually when the labor market breaks. But, you know, obviously, as you alluded to, we've had a very weird behavior in labor markets where it's not been very broad-based um, in terms of the, the the magnitude of the the. Dis- of the deterioration, right? So it's just been stop-start here and there. Um, and ultimately, clearly, as part of our bigger high inflation roadmap, this is tied to labor hoarding. This is tied to um, labor now getting more power so they can start fighting back, trying to restore real incomes. This is tied to the previous fiscal stimulus that meant there was a boost to corporate profits because excess savings went up, right? So, so corporate's able to pass on price increases and actually increase profits so mm-hmm. these are all somewhat ultimately uh, interlinked so in a way you know we should expect to see that the labor market looks okay and then when it breaks it breaks very very quickly right it's kind of we're all going to be sat around you know I think at this point people probably bored of staring you know every Thursday initial claims number right it just keeps just going sideways and people get bored of it but when it breaks it's going to go suddenly right that's kind of the interpretation because Um, companies and corporates are going to wait until the last possible moment to do layoffs, right? There's going to be more room for pain where profit margins, operating margins, slowly start to get hurt as labor starts to kind of capture all the benefits of inflation. Eventually, the pain is too much and then companies have to cut. So I I still think that that broadly is, is the thesis. So it's very important that we're obviously trying to track things like inflation capture and what's happening to uh, kind of profit margins or operating margins in in particular in all those sectors where uh, where they have very outsized exposure to labor um so so that's kind of high level what's been going on and in terms of specifically why you've had this dip and the spike is it's the top right chart where during the during the summer layoffs um, basically shrank quite a lot and then suddenly with the latest data you had quite a big spike again uh, so, so that's why it's being a little bit junky but broadly speaking, um, you know, it's still one of these situations where the labor market stress is probably going to be quite delayed. Um, it'll give a false sense of security to kind of, you know, the, the news, the consensus views, but actually how it's going to show up is in hours worked in, um, uh, in profit margins and in labor hoarding, right? Ultimately, that's what, where it should show up. And I think also this is a reasonable explanation for why you're seeing this very strange behavior on data, like, uh, you know, this GDP versus GDI divergence. Right. So I think, you know, I see a lot more talked about now on Twitter, on, on lots of, you know, places sending around versus, you know, kind of, you know, early in the year. But if you look, it's, it's, you know, it's it's quite unprecedented that you get this bigger divergence for so long. And ultimately this could be, you know, somewhere linked to this situation we're, we're in where, Consumers have been drawing access savings. They're they're spending a lot. So the GDP numbers look okay, Uh, but the incomes have actually been weaker than expected So you have a gap. And so um, now that labor needs to uh, start to fight back start to like increase trying to extract more of the pie and start to boost their own incomes. And then that potentially helps to close, close the gap. Right? Like, you know, obviously it's hard to know exactly, uh, in real time. But I think a lot of these factors are ultimately somewhat linked. Um, and obviously the key thing for us here is still the top left chart, where once you you know adjust for all the kind of massive COVID distortions to seasonal adjustment factors, you still are picking up on this underlying trend of steady labor market deterioration in most of the kind of key leading data. Um, it's just weird that it's not accelerating like you would see in a normal uh, kind of recession. Um, you know, the some of the best explanations, you know, what we had a you know quite a few clients mention it to us is ultimately there could still be a lot of latent fiscal stimulus that have yet to come through. The government's obviously still uh, keeping going. So uh, you know, that's that's kind of one of the main explanations that's been brought about for this. Um but but you know, I think I think the, the problem with the, the fiscal deficit argument is ultimately it's slightly um circular, right? Because if you actually look at the data, there'll be times in recessions when automatic stabilizers kick in, the government deficit, um, the the government fiscal deficit expands a lot, but that's just a response to the fact the economy is really slow. So usually when one piece moves, it it kind of matters how the other pieces move. And I think this is why we do all those levy decompositions to track what's going on. And as far as we can tell based on the data, it feels more like, you know, fiscal is not going to be adding more impact but the the marginal impact is also just you know it's kind of removing head removing tailwinds, but there's not that much of a headwind. it's just kind of flat. so you, it's more I think going forward on a marginal basis is now up to the private sector more to see what happens and obviously on, on that front um you know we're a bit more concerned on on what the uh, the data looks like. uh slide five, I think is worth spending um, a decent amount of time on so, uh, the top left-hand chart, which, again, was, was one of the foundational uh, pieces of work we did for the for the Goddard's recession report, is this idea of um, late, uh, inflation capture. right? So when inflation is going up, ultimately, which sector is benefiting? Is it corporates or is it labor? And so what has been very unique um, about the post-COVID cycle has been that initially, corporates benefited enormously from inflation. Um, and so that's basically the gray bars in the top left where you can see that you know they are capturing a lot of initial inflation as profits so not only is inflation not a problem it actually boosted their profits for them and intuitively this is obviously linked to the government doing a bunch of fiscal easing right boosting excess savings which meant that the final demand the ultimate the final customer was happy to pay up when when corporates put up prices. Um, so this factor is basically, Exhausted. So since the Q3 22 data, uh, inflation is no longer boosting profits. And you had this very minor uh, kind of negative contribution in Q1 this year. So now labor is capturing basically 100% of the benefits of inflation. So going forward, this would suggest that the the kind of um, pressure on corporate profit margins in aggregate is going to still keep coming. So you would expect uh, continued headwinds for U.S. corporate profits. And this is obviously aligned to the top right chart we've shown here as well, with the um, the NFIB survey data on cost of labor, quality of labor, and loan availability. Um, you know, we I I basically spent a lot of time looking through which of the data series that can help us, you know, go back to the seventies, and these are like the few uh, kind of subcomponents of the NFIB service that can go all the way back, and you can see it's a pretty good. A historical relationship to, to change in profit margins and obviously the message broadly is still that uh you know there will continue to be upward pressure on costs which means that profit margins are ultimately under pressure and eventually when profit margins are hurt enough then obviously companies may be forced to lay off workers um the other implication of this is that we're going to get a very divergent sector level behavior in response to this phenomenon. So if you, so the bottom two charts are a little bit hard to see, but if, if you know, if clients interest, we can send the kind of high res version, but essentially we look through all the kind of key sectors to understand which of the sectors that are most exposed to this kind of labor capture idea where, um, that increasing labor costs are going to really pressure their profit margins. And at the same time, which of these sectors are capital abundant or scarce and ultimately how much of an adjustment in estimated EPS that has been. So basically, it's combining all these factors together uh, in terms of EPS drawdowns, crowding, capital cycle and exposure to labor. And so after the end of all that, the kind of key summary is we think consumer products and services are actually particularly exposed. They've obviously had a very good run with the reopening um, kind of narrative, right? You know, everyone's getting back out and spending. But they're gonna—they're ultimately pretty vulnerable to labor, construction material. Another really interesting, contrarian example where, again, due to kind of the U.S. home building wave, right, the big U.S. construction, these have also benefited alongside all the home builders and kind of whole story. But again, you know, normally these are considered great industries, you know, oligopolistic, etc. But they're gonna be exposed um, to, to kind of a uh, rising labor costs as well, right? And you know, this. Other specific examples we can think of in companies with unionized na- labor. So, you know, legacy airlines, uh, you know, companies like FedEx, obviously it's been in the news. Um, so, um, but in terms of the sector level, what's more visible in terms of the EPS adjustments. So you know, consumer products, machinery, food and beverage, construction materials. So these are actually more likely to pay off as um, risk off expressions, I think for the recession, rather than just trying to short S&P or NASDAQ. Right. ultimately if this is truly a story about inflation environments where labor ultimately pressures profit margins then arguably big tech are a, a, kind of a lot more resilient to these things right they got better balance sheets obviously they, they were able to fire a lot of workers last year there was a lot of fat to cut um and they're probably slightly less exposed um and what very interesting on the flip side is that you know energy basic resources and drugs and grocery school, stores actually show up on the flip side of this as potential longs that are more resilient. Um, and obviously energy we like a lot, obviously a lot of, you know, drugs and, um, grocery and like a lot of these companies being hit super hard recently. Um, so yeah, I, I think this is kind of a, a more nuanced way to express this, you know, labor driven, negative operating leverage view. And you know, I think that's basically our main learning because obviously we got things wrong in Q2, right? They see a Q1, I think, you know, recession, shrinking liquidity, that was all making sense. But then once SVB kicks off um, and the Fed intervenes, we've obviously had a, a quite big shift in terms of the Q2 setup. And then I, I think, on reflection, the learnings from Q2 is really understanding that we're going to have this divergent sector level behavior. That this time around, the Fed has shown that they're not really willing to tolerate large scale contagion, they're going to be willing to step in. So it's even more important. To tease out the relative sector exposures to express the kind of relative value uh, pieces.
0: Yeah, I I would just add to that, like obviously the, um, you know, within the small cap space, you know, there is a lot of damage getting priced in already, right? And so I think the key is that, you know, within the large cap space, you know, removing kind of the headline indices, there is still a lot of asymmetry there where, you know, markets are not pricing that in. And so things like capital cycle and crowding, you know, they don't explicitly have valuation inputs. So I guess this analysis just helps us tie together those pieces where we can now just get a bit cuter in terms of really honing in on, you know, once the backloaded recession stress really starts to become apparent, uh, you know, these are the key candidates, um, you know, to really to really get aggressive on, um, you know, I, I put in the leading indicator watch today, you know, the feds done research themselves. I think it, they they put their piece out in June or July. Um, according to their calculations they think 37% of of uh us companies are currently in financial distress and they're using um like the merton distance to default model um and using the compustat um database which supposedly accounts for about a third of all private employment in the states um and so you know i think um you know with that kind of rolling recession narrative that you know it is obviously most apparent in you know, areas that are, um, you know, most sensitive to, you know, tightening liquidity, you know, the manufacturing pieces and so forth. Um, you know, we have kind of seen that play out and markets have kind of priced that in to, to a degree, but I think there is still a lot of excess that um, that is not really being captured at the moment. And again, that's linked to the fact that, you know, leading data has pointed us in this way, but the coincidence stuff is not obvious as yet. Whereas in smaller, companies, you know, you've seen, you know, effective interest rates really start to pick up following the Fed's tightening cycle. Um, but I guess, yeah, just on, on energy TN I mean, um, you know, we um, you know, I think <laughs> we've been bullish for a, for a very long time, just based on the capital cycle, commodity super cycle thesis. Um, I think it was in July, the, the, the snapshot, where we saw some tactical buy signals trigger. Um, and so again, we were like, you know, this is a good time to put on some tactical long exposure alongside the kind of core allocation. Um, I guess just um, almost taking a step back a little bit, just trying to understand, because obviously we did see a huge amount of signals trigger over the course of the last couple of months or so. I mean, when in your mind, are you looking to kind of take off some of these tactical positions, you know, because obviously we are kind of trading around the the core allocation here. Um, you know, is it a case of waiting for um, you know, some of the tactical sell signals to start triggering on energy, or is it a case of just understanding, you know, things like fast money, if it just goes from an extreme level to a neutral level, that's kind of the, the, the tactical piece that's, um, that's exhausted. itself.
1: So. um, well, I th- I think in July in that same report, I kind of basically shifted the kind of core, um, kind of multi asset portfolio to essentially be long energy, long, long, um, tips, right. Um, that's kind of the, the core setup um and then within that obviously we still have all the capital scarce pieces I guess in the energy bucket uh sorry in, in the equity bucket that we care about right so like latam um is very capital scarce obviously Brazil is still the top kind of EM debt piece um but yeah I mean I, I think these are just more probably you know doing stuff around the edges by heart again going back to what we talked about we want to be positioned for a high inflation kind of setup but we also want to be positioned for a couple of things, right? One is the 69, 70 analogy we talked about with the Fed, where they're gonna be reluctant to cut. They're only gonna cut when the hard data is really bad. They care about inflation credibility. Um, You know, they gotta make sure they get inflation to a very low number for a while before they can move the inflation target, right? There's gonna be a bunch of these things where the Fed's gonna be reluctant to cut early. Um, So you kind of have to be ready for that. Uh, But at the same time, they've also shown that the policy toolkit is, is now very different, right? interest rate po- policy is used to deal with macroeconomic growth inflation side, whereas they're obviously a lot more willing to use the balance sheet to address um, financial stress. Right. And, um, and this is a little bit linked to before, you know, we talked about uh, Perry Merlin's hierarchy of money and all these concepts where the Fed's a lot more willing now to intervene directly in asset markets, you know, there's been multiple precedent, right? It was very unprecedented with, after GFC, when they, you know, start buying mortgage-backed securities, you know COVID said the president where they're going to basically cross over that right so you you're, you know and obviously this time around um after SVB it was just like instantly allowing everyone to basically mentally mark up all their treasuries to to basic par, um so it's being a lot more aggressive intervening and ultimately the feds in a very different regime which in my mind we can interpret as your risk of a gen- general contagion is probably a bit lower until you really see the, the kind of labor market hard data break, right? So in that meantime, it does buy your window for a lot of the areas where you've had a lot of bad news pricing with a lot of you know decent entry points, say like tips, right? Say like energy, some of these things. So that that does seem to make sense. And and then the sign to get out would ultimately be if the US hard data really breaks. Um so that's probably more how I'm framing it. The tactical piece are, are probably nice around are clearly nice around the around the edges, right? But I don't think that they're I don't think you know the, the 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 key driver in my mind is ultimately yeah obviously the, the U.S. labor data that you know, the you know sequencing is going to be operating profits start getting hurt obviously that will hurt some of the equity sectors and then you see more broad-based labor market stress pick up which will then enable the Fed to cut so until we get to that point even though the market will, the market will likely keep trying to price cuts in. Um, for the Fed, but they're probably going to be disappointed until the data breaks. Um and yeah, and obviously for things where you, you've had a lot more bad news price, there's probably a window where, where you can um you know get some decent payoff. So that's probably more how, how I'm, I'm thinking about it. Obviously, if we get like an enormous amount of tactical signals trigger, obviously we should have those diffusion charts, then you know it'll probably be a sign to take a closer look. Um and just on the Fed thing, yeah, on, on slide, just conscious of time. So slide six, I think it's really important to spend some time on this bottom left chart as well, because again, one of the, the what's the right word, differences, is that the Fed fundamentally operates in a different policy regime than it did in around the GFC, right? Ultimately, the Fed operates an excess reserve regime today than it did before. And there's a number of implications from this. And potentially explains why the cycle has felt very different. Why a lot of the traditional leading lagging relationships have taken longer to work or have been a lot slower to work. Um, so again, historically in the pre GFC days, you know when central banking is thought of as, you know, just lend of last resort type, type things, right. You know, they control reserves, you know, there's discount window, all, all these kind of things Things you know where you punish people to borrow from discount window. Um, you know, in those situations, I think when the Fed acts on policy, it's a lot easier for it to start having an immediate impact uh, on uh, in terms of the rest of the economy. But obviously since then, because the Fed operates this excess reserve reg- regime, they obviously are a lot happier to just flood the system, the money markets, everything with reserves just to make sure we don't have a repeat of the previous kind of money market crisis situation. So you've ended up in this weird situation where the Fed's done QT for a long time now, right? And those, all the headlines are going around the balance sheet. You <laughs> know, it's you know we're we're down like almost a trillion dollars in the balance sheet, and then obviously we're tracking all these money market rates to understand if the Fed's starting to get some traction in terms of draining reserves from system, and it's basically barely had much of an impact, right? Um, and there's this sense that you know I, I don't know how much more room they have because obviously none of us knows exactly when reserves hit the biting point, but obviously you've had um various kind of um money stresses, right? So in 2019, when you had the original kind of, uh, you know, the kind of reserve scarcity scare, right? When you had all those spikes in in money market rates. So that was when, um, you know, that was when even the nominally excess reserves is defined by the Fed, which is actually reserves held above kind of the minimum reserve requirement was a lot higher. The system still gummed up, right? Due to regulations and stuff like that. So the idea was this time, round and that was in response to that the fed obviously instituted a bunch of uh, new programs and so one of the interesting things this time around is um they have a mechanism in place now to prevent those huge spikes but in terms of seeing where the marginal stress comes the the money market should still be where you see the the kind of reserve scarcity kicking and so in the bottom right hand chart obviously what we're tracking constantly is where various money market rates are trading relative to the RRP award rate which is supposed to be a theoretical floor So in theory, most of these things should start to trade positive. So the number you see is basically relative to the award rate. So we should expect to see basically all these rates should start trading positive and start to bump up against this um, dotted blue line, which is the interest paid on reserve balances um, line, right? So once you start getting to that and above, then that would really be a sign that the system's starting to run out of liquidity um, at the money market level. But clearly because of the the excess reserve regime we're in and the Fed's willingness to supply, we're still very far away from that and so that's again something that's been very weird um well not not very weird obviously we just explained it but it's again something that is is a bit different this time in terms of trying to understand how much traction um fed Titan is getting how much more room they have to go and, and and what's kind of the early warning indicators right so I think this is a very important early warning indicator we've obviously written about private credit leverage loans you know BDCs right those are going to be important um because you know if the to, to your point, if the Fed's doing work saying 37 percent companies are distressed and there's credit stress, right, it's obviously a lot of it hasn't fed through in some of the macro level top-down things. Like this, you should start to see some things here. You should start to see it in you know some of the BDCs should probably sell off, right? We've seen like some of the very low recoveries in leverage loans, so I feel like those are like the risk now. The rip, you know, going back maybe to the earlier question, right? H- how do we decide when things are going bad, right? One is the labor market data breaks, but those credit leverage loan piece really still be an early warning that we need to track. Um, so, yeah, I think this is an, another piece that's just worth highlighting. And I think, you know, this this has become like a topic of discussion, I think, based
0: on the feedback we had to this report. So, so linked to to that, right, that yeah. analysis and things like RP, obviously that was getting drawn down and then, you know, you had a huge amount of money getting parked there, right? And then effectively linked to our, um, you know, us being wrong in Q2 where, you know, we're trying to express risk off. Um, you know, we saw RRP starts, starting to get drawn down at that time. You saw effectively bank reserves still holding up. And so that was kind of good news for the Fed in a way because it was you know indicating that that kind of excess liquidity piece was getting drained without kind of constraining the system. Um, and then things like TGA rebuild is not really fully offsetting the impact there. So, you know, you're getting a net liquidity injection. And then, you know, obviously, you know, we got the excess liquidity, BCFI, these are kind of our cyclical guides, right? For liquidity on a six to 12 month basis. Do you think that, I mean, how much weight do you place on, um, you know, things like money market facilities and these things as kind of completing the liquidity analysis, because obviously they're operating across different time horizons, but do you think that was a key missing piece, um, you know, going back to, um, you know, effectively our Q2, roadmap where, you know, we got things wrong and we didn't fully appreciate the fact that net liquidity was kind of coming in, even though things like excess liquidity and stuff were getting quite negative. Well, actually, I think the indicators broadly was fine in Q2, right? I think
1: Q2 one is, I think the AI hype um, was creating something like, you know, right? That that we can park, but actually I think it's more the fact that when uh, the fed did the BTFP intervention, where you're allowed to pledge treasury collateral part into the facility um I, and obviously it was also one year term right so normally discount window you go for like 90 days whatever like you, you get you know this is like a one-year term loan I think that signaling w- was quite important um because normally historically whenever the Fed panics uh initially it's not ne- not necessarily uh bullish right initially historically when the Fed initially panics there's usually a lot more parties to come and they have to cut rates and that's usually the bottom. I think looking back on on that period, what we probably failed to appreciate again, going back to the Perry Merlin hierarchy of money was when the Fed says you can market a par, they're actually going like right to the bottom of that hierarchy of money and saying, actually all these treasuries you saw was money good, it really is money good. And I think it's it's a fair to be taking a bunch of these mark market losses and just making it disappear. Right. And I think that was the um that was probably the the piece we missed that ultimately then you had the the AI thing and that obviously helps drive the narrative. But obviously if you look at non-tech big cap names, right? Like it, it's not like all the equities are done super well, right? So it's not like the fundamental economy suddenly um got a lot better. Um I'm just conscious of time, but I, th- I think on RP though, I've definitely thought a lot about it. And I, I just think the way people talk about how bank reserves the only thing to try for liquidity is actually wrong. Like the reason the RP facility is so gummed up and was so big originally was because you had a bunch of uh, regulations linked to Basel three, um, and and um, and and um, all these costs imposed on on the kind of banks that forced banks to actually um, start to lose money on the deposits they had. Right. So actually, what you so the so the impact was more, uh, you know, all the big banks, you know, J.P. Morgan's or whatever, you know, they they it was costing them to service depo- you know, deposit business for a bunch of risky clients because the risk weightings and, and some of the capital charges against them. So. It, so basically they're the ones who try and force all these guys out and these guys had nowhere to go. So they end up going to money market funds without parking the money at the R P. So in a way, the RRP is kind of a reflection of, of just the deposits that should have been in the banking system originally, but because all the regulations and the banks forcing out, you just ended up there, right? So in my mind, mentally it should be seen together as part of kind of deposit uh, base. Um, and so ultimately it's about thinking about that with, Kind of essentially demand deposits, right? As a combo, um, and then that collectively gives you gives you a sense sense of how deposits are moving and um, and how much "quote unquote" kind of liquidity there is in the system. So, again, overall, I would say it's more the fact that you're going to have this controlled demolition. Um, you know, there's it's the Fed will step in. If there's too much large contagion, right? Not if that's going to be allowed happens. You're going to have to be more surgical in targeting which of the bits sectors and assets that are likely to be allowed to blow up and equally looking at which of the bits that are probably unfairly priced in and it's unlikely you'll get a you know like a no-brainer gfc style valuation to to get to get in right on these things that that will probably be
0: the summary um should we um should we run through china really quickly just given the you know obviously the you know, put in the leading indicator watch, well, put in the snapshot here, the kind of cyclical story, you know, the LEIs are kind of still in place. Not a huge amount has changed there, right? Where growth LEI is still failing to turn up, inflation LEI, again, still at the lows, but then, you know, excess liquidity, um, you know, i.e. stripping out growth and inflation um, is very high. And that's, uh, you know, almost paradoxically, that's actually bullish for equities, right? Um, but then I, I guess, you know, have you having been there in the, in the mainland, I mean, um, do you want to give us just a bit of color in terms of how to interpret these LEIs and whether it's kind of more of a, you know, with, with respect to the Chinese equity trade, obviously we saw the tactical signals trigger, um, you know, that's still quite aligned. But then, you know, on the more cyclical and structural angles, I guess, um, you know, do you think that that still holds true the excess liquidity playbook?
1: Yeah. So I, I think the China econ- Chinese real economy is really going to struggle to absorb the liquidity. You know, our growth L.E.I. and inflation L.E.I. is obviously are uh, still deteriorating and going sideways. So it's kind of an L-shaped um, economic path right now. Um, but obviously they are being persistent in trying to ease more. So there will be more liquidity created and if it has nowhere to go to go. And, you know, yields keep being forced lower. And ultimately, you know, I think there's a decent chance it finds its way into equities. And, you know, the, the authorities are already trying to generate a ball marking equities, right? They just keep on doing marginal things there. So I, I think that, that part still fine as, as a trade in terms of positioning, um, right? Ta- in terms of having the tactical lineup with the, the excess liquidity story. So I still think that makes sense. Um, structurally, I think the the, the challenges are, are pretty overwhelming, right? Like, you know, these structural challenges have been building for a decade or two. Um, and now it's like increasingly harder to get a big band solution to resolve it um so yeah I, I think it kind of depends on 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 the time horizon obviously first in terms of you looking out six months right end of the year beginning of next year there's probably a decent chance for equities to, to go from this excess liquidity effect um that's probably broadly how how would um how how we frame it uh right but yeah the structural picture looks pretty dire and it's actually hard to see a way out uh right now yeah and the final piece I think is yeah, just on the BOJ, right? Because I think that was a, a few questions around it as well. So, you know, in, in principle, a lot of these hiking, easing regime models would designed and built to help us with timing. So normally when they go off, you're supposed to take the trade. Um, obviously it worked pretty well for the ECB at the end of June, right, when we used it. And obviously we're staring at this for the Fed to help understand kind of, you know, when to really bet on the kind of recession scenario or to put on, you know, or to more aggressively put on kind of, you know, steepen the trades, right? um but the problem with Japan I guess is that the because the BOJ policy is not really free to move because they obviously are doing yoke of control and the the cap is still very low relative to where everyone else is it's got this really awkward setup where the set suggests you'll probably get some kind of counter trend maybe it's some kind of counter trend move when they do something but obviously it's been um none of the moves elastic right when they widen the yoke of band um you know, I can't remember now. A few weeks earlier, right? They widened it, and then you had a very small reaction dollar yen, and then it came back, right? So it does feel like you know the, the 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 kind of global carry trade is overwhelming, right? Because the yield differential is so large between um, the yen and CNH that there's just a large margin of error for for people to keep doing their carry trades. So and obviously, carries done very well. FX carries done very well this year. So you would need like really major, major, big roll moves to probably shake people out. Otherwise, it feels like it's just still a very comfortable trade for everyone to get back in on financing that carry by um, by obviously shorting CNH and, and, and JPY. So you know the tangible actual trade here is probably to try and remove the um, that 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 carry element and look at CNH JPY. Right, obviously you got that we got that chart on the right. You know, it's bumping against kind of these previous levels. Um, so that might be something that's actually can, can go lower. You don't have such a negative carry trying to bet on shorting CNA, JPY. Um, and in theory, if people just financing their trades, you both legs, you, you know, it's, it's, it's probably not as, um, not as big a risk that everyone just keeps going with the carry trade. So yeah, that, that's probably the main thing to say on this. And that this is probably the, 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 the context, um, that, that we should have presented this in a bit better the first time around. I,
0: th- I think it's one of those examples, right, where you know we don't want to react blindly to models triggering, right? I think you need the context and you need to understand, do the work, and understand if is there. You know, in this case, there wasn't an obvious trade setup, but then it's thinking about things that are linked to it, and so you know things like Japan life is that um, you know obviously it's a very niche part of the market. Um, I think we flagged that mid-August, um, and you know we did a the whole report, and um, um, I think back into last year, but. You know those those that's a nice kind of positive carry way to play for that um, asymmetric, you know, higher inflation rate regime. Um, you know things like crowding scores were extremely ne- like really really low um, going into August, and so actually now I think that I think they've started to to rally quite a bit. So that was actually quite interesting. Where we're again blending different parts of the the VP toolkit, um, and then trying to really isolate and understand what the most asymmetric setups are. Um, yeah, perfect
1: I'm, I'm just, just conscious of the time um you know I think you know if, if clients do have questions obviously feel free to send it via the QA or via email and we can follow up um I think we're overrunning a, a little bit so I think just to um just to end on um you know I think this is going to be uh Aaron's um last kind of uh monthly client call you know I think you know he's moving on to some very exciting opportunities so I you know Aaron, I want to give you like a a little bit of room as well, if you wanted to share anything with
0: our with our client base. <laughs> yeah, I'll make this very quick. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm joining a, a pension fund to to drive um, their kind of cyclical investment strategy. Um, yeah, I think the the breadth of VP tools and kind of the accumulated knowledge along the way. You know, I've been a VP for four years now. Um, I think it really puts me in a good position to to help these kind of big pools of money. Um, you know, my experience of B- VP is has actually been quite. Additive in a way where you know we spent a lot of time building out, developing a lot of these tools, and you know actually using it in real time. You know it, personally, you get a better sense of how to you know feel, get a feel for a lot of these tools and indicators, and how to weight them in your own kind of investment process. So yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of transitioning to becoming a, a client, a VP, and a, and a user of the of the portal. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, thanks, Dan. Yeah, awesome. All right, Th-
1: thanks everyone. Cheers.